Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm Rob Lawrence, and as always, welcome to my host, Hilary Gates. Hi, Rob. Great to be here today. We have a pretty important guest. He's from an organization called the NREMT. Have you heard of it? NREMT. No, let's bring him in and ask him all about it. So our guest today is actually Mark Terry, who is the Chief Certification Officer for the National Registry of EMTs. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much. Hello, Rob. Hello, Hillary. So why don't you kick us off for those that uh, possibly there's one or two people on the planet that haven't heard of this organization. So start off by just giving us a quick backstory of the National Registry. Thank you. The National Registry is the nation's EMS certification organization. It was originally formed in 1970 to start laying out standards for this new industry that we started to refer to as emergency medical services. And it's done a number of things over the years. Most importantly is, is that we serve to verify the minimum competency for EMS practitioners, the EMTs and paramedics who do their important work around the country, and is now used as the basis for licensure in about 48 states, depending on the the level and the specific jurisdictional areas. And there are currently about 425,000 nationally registered practitioners across the country. Thank you for that. And one of the reasons we're talking today is because of the pandemic in particular. It's been a great disruptor. There are things have changed. And I know Hillary's got some sort of fairly detailed questions about that, but I guess that the bigger picture, how has the pandemic affected what you guys are doing at the registry? What are you seeing and what are you hearing? The pandemic has shown huge challenges for emergency medical services, and it's been both incredibly challenging and a little bit inspiring to see EMS practitioners really step up time and again to the incredible challenges that the pandemic has presented. From the national certification viewpoint, we started modifying the rules around national certification as soon as the national declaration started to come out and as soon as the impacts were starting to be felt throughout the country by changing the recertification rules for the pandemic, by modifying some of the initial entry-level criteria and deadlines, as well as even changing how the examinations were delivered. And to really speak to the resilience of the EMS industry, the examinations volumes of national registry examinations that were offered and passed by the practitioners around the country after about a four-month lag were at or above their prior levels. And currently in 2021, the number of certificates is slightly above what it would have been in 2019. But there was clearly a huge gap from about March of 2020 up through the summer until some of the fixes were put in place, such as remote proctored examinations, etc. Similarly, our recertification set records in 2020. And again, in terms of numbers, set records again in 2021. I think that really shows the, the resilience of the EMS community, as well as the flexibility of the the National Registry as an organization that can be very responsive to change. The bad news is, is that it's clear that employers and agencies are still reporting huge gaps with workforce shortages, et cetera. That 
can happen at the same time that there's an increasing number of practitioners coming into the industry. It means, though, that there may be changes in what people are doing in EMS, in where they are working in the healthcare continuum, or even in what duties they have to where we can have both of those conditions coming up and at the same time. And I think that really points out the, a huge challenge for the coming months and years. So it's an interesting statistic you made there, and thank you for answering the question in the way that you did, because generally people are saying we are having a massive shortage. We're not getting people trained and through, but the numbers, and I'm a great fan of data, of course, the numbers seem to be speaking for themselves, but, and the but is, we've got to get these people in the right place in order to do what we need them to do. Yes. Uh, Shortages are always expressed in relative terms. I don't have what I need. If the need is outpacing the supply, it doesn't matter that the numbers are increasing. It matters that it's not meeting the need that I have at this local area. So there may be distribution areas where some sectors are doing very well, others not as well. It could be that the demands are greatly expanding. We've heard reports that are like that. Clearly a lot of challenges. Clearly we've still got work to do, but I think that we do have some hopeful signs that it's not either hopeful or challenging, I guess, depending on how you look at it. It's not something to where it's a clear one point in the pipeline. Past president of an AMT, Matt Zavadsky, now famously said, you know, we don't have a paramedic shortage. We have a paramedic maldistribution, and I'll leave it there. Hillary? Perfect. You know, Mark, I have to go back to what you said earlier, and um, and that is uh, that you talked about changing the rules for EMS initial certification as well as EMS recertification. And I must ask the question that I think is on everyone's mind. This has never happened before, right? For the modifications of the rules, there have been times in which there have been variances from the rules or that there have been situations that have come up. But in terms of the massive change of rules as rapidly as they were done, no, it would have been unprecedented. Just like the pandemic, of course. And I I want to dig into what it's like there in Ohio and what most of us on the street feel might be like the land of Oz and you're the man behind the curtain, if I can call you that, that we're now getting access to you. You've always given access, to be fair. You know, most providers don't get to hear from the the NRENT uh, from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And I would want to know what it was like inside your building, or sorry, no building, you are on Zoom with everyone making these decisions. That must have been really, really difficult. And I don't know, walk us through the discussion that happened where you made a decision to change something that could potentially make safety an issue or, you know, make providers be on the street without the proper education. I mean, these are huge decisions. Talk us through that. They were. And and I want to put it in, in terms of the, the proper context, though, to start off with, Hillary. And, and that is, is, as difficult as I might think some of the challenges that we had were, I think that the difficulty and the level of difficulty of those compared to the difficulties that line EMTs and paramedics faced with being faced with inadequate PPE sourcing or difficulties in getting PPE sourcing, and as well as the unknowns, uh, don't rate as the same kinds of difficulties in, in my book. When the pandemic first came out, we went into a mode where initially we're trying to assess the risk, assess the impacts, and then working as rapidly as we could to resolve what were the perceived bottlenecks. And that meant setting up communication systems that hadn't had before, such as weekly teleconferences with all of the state officials to say, what is the greatest need that you have right now? And then adapting to those things. 
throughout the mechanisms, we were trying to look at it and say, let's make sure that if we have to make a change, let's go with a big change up front to prevent a lot of little changes. And some of those things I think that we got right. And some of those things we weren't thinking big enough at the very initial outset. So for instance, when we initially considered, okay, we know that people are going to have difficulties with the exam. Let's give everyone a six-month delay in all of the deadlines. We don't want to handle these as one-off. We don't want to make people ask for them. Let's just give it to everybody. We knew that there were going to be challenges with access to the examinations with test centers. So we embarked on a, a rapid campaign to engage in internet-delivered test delivery options. It was not clear that the infrastructure existed at that point. It wasn't clear how that was going to be done. And we implemented that in 11 weeks, what would normally have been about a six to seven month implementation. And other things required a lot of coordination with federal, state, and local agencies, such as the fact that the Department of Homeland Security didn't view certification organizations as part of the critical infrastructure at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was groups of ourselves working in partnerships with other certifications that were able to demonstrate to the critical infrastructure list, look, the educational institutions, the certification institutions, all of those are necessary to ensure the pipeline of personnel that's providing the healthcare practitioners remains as uninterrupted as possible. There were clearly interruptions that happened with that, but in comparison to what other certifications faced, we returned to volumes much quicker that were comparable to prior years than other certifications that, that we would compare to. Your grace in recognizing the stress that the EMS providers were feeling and the hospitals and the medical industry is really appreciated. But I can just imagine as the nation's certifying body, you going home at night and maybe having a hard time sleeping, realizing you were changing some longstanding traditions or longstanding and well-researched practices. And so I think all of us can appreciate that position and, and the fact that you tried as hard as you could to do the right thing for the right reasons at the right time. I mean, it's almost a very impossible situation to be in. I'm glad I wasn't, wasn't at that table <laughs> as an educator. It, it was daunting. It, no, it was daunting. When we initially, when it initially came up in the early part of March was when we started seeing a lot of the declarations came out. We looked at the prior test volumes and calculated that over the next 90 days, we would expect to see 60,000 new EMTs and paramedics entering the workforce <laughs> during something to where everything had been disrupted. And at that point, when we did that simple calculation, it became very apparent that the old rules did not apply. And it was purely how can we preserve as much of that pipeline as possible. And so as the contingencies, all of the gloves came off and the, the limits came out, we, we threw away the boxes at that point in time and just started looking at and say, what do people need and how do we get there? I'll ask you one other thing, and then we'll move on from talking about the pandemic and on to some other things. And that is, what are some successes and, and success stories that you heard about or learned about or watched from your vantage point that you saw educators accomplish or that you saw students accomplish during this challenging time? Uh, wow, there are so many of them that it, it becomes amazing to me. First off, to watch an entire sector of the EMS industry, EMS education, EMS continuing education, in the space of a few weeks, completely redesign how they were delivering their programs was 
incredible to watch, of seeing initial training programs saying, how do we practice skills? And literally, in some cases, boxing up mannequins and supplies and sending them home with students so that they could practice their skills at homes within their bubbles and then would design over, you know, and be monitored over some type of distributive network like Zoom or GoToMeeting or something like that. The fact that very few of the educational institutions even had ready access to to those technologies before the pandemic, the fact that within a couple of months, things were moving so quickly was just amazing. Stadium S conferences, another one. In the space of a few weeks, pivoted from the position of we can't have 900 people in the same room together to we need to have something together to we're going to convert everything to Zoom. All of that happened so incredibly quickly. It was inspiring to see. And I think that the Zoom platform or or other platforms have given us the ability to actually hit the masses. Of course, I'm going to plug our award-winning, did I mention award-winning Refresh 2021 program? And, you know, to have 30,000 people in the room, theoretically in the room, has been amazing. However, don't forget, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts. We're on the SoundCloud, Amazon Music. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, and many other things. And if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Before we go any further, let's just take a moment to listen to Christine with our sponsor, EMS Gives Life. Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver, saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you would go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. And remember, do visit the EMS Gives Life website and read all about it. I'm a Brit talking to you uh, in America. Well, actually, I'm in America too. But uh, one of the questions that I've been asked over the years since I've been here is, I want to come and work in America too. So what are the opportunities or the barriers to come from, let's say, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and let's face it, they're all four-year paramedics. But how do they jump the pond, really, Mark? What, what are the processes? So let me start with the barriers, and then let's start talking about the solutions. First off, the barriers is that different countries uh, around the world have sometimes different models for emergency medical services in terms of what a paramedic in one jurisdiction may not be the same as a paramedic in another jurisdiction. In my history as working as an EMS practitioner, I used to say that EMS around the United States is 75% exactly the same and 25% incredibly different. The trick was just knowing which was which. Um, And I think that applies to around the world as well. Unfortunately, we've not progressed to the point as an industry to where we've got international comparisons of those frameworks to where we could say, we know these pieces, this is the 75%, and this is the 25%. I think those are rapidly developing. In the meantime, what the National Registry, and one of the barriers is the National Registry is tied to the state licensure system, remembering 
certification, competency verification, licensure, authorization by a government to engage in a restricted practice, because those two things are tied together with those assumptions, we have to be somewhat cautious about how we approach it. The accreditation requirement for paramedics provides a mechanism to do that, and that is through the advanced placement pathway to where paramedic educational institutions are explicitly authorized to be able to evaluate the training, education, and experience of a practitioner and then allow the evaluation directly of those competencies rather than requiring a simple seat in time. So if somebody is coming from another jurisdiction, from another national jurisdiction, we refer them to the accredited paramedic program to engage in an evaluation of that, of their knowledge, skills, experiences, and then be able to engage in, in uh, give them a course completion certificate that would then allow for the confirmation exam for certification. Thank you for answering that. And obviously, the other half of that is just having the appropriate and correct immigration status. I've been very, very lucky that I came here with a green card already. But a lot of folk have to find the sponsor, they have to find the uh, legislation, and they have to find the correct visa sponsorship to go with that. So it's a two-part answer. But thank you for answering the technical question. Hillary. And I think the other important thing here is that the distinguishment between American and maybe the UK is just simply the way you pronounce processes and schedules. So as long as you say processes and schedules, then really you're proving that you're British. Right, Rob? We are an international podcast. We are going out on the SoundCloud to the world. And so whether you're having a tomato juice or a tomato juice, please stay with us on the EMS Educator podcast. Ah, that got you back. Your question, Hillary. Thank you. Your witness. <laughs> oh, we have a good time here. Mark, one of the things that has come up lately in the news out of the NREMT is the redesign of the ALS certification test. Talk to us about what's going on with perhaps lengthening the written test or the computer-based test, as well as what's going to happen with the psychomotor part of the test. The National Registry Examinations team has been working on a redesign project, and this has been going on for some time. This was actually first announced in 2019 of overall revisions of the advanced life support examination processes. And so what I'm going to talk about is specifically for the advanced life support, AEMT and paramedic exams. The current skills exam, the current psychomotor exam, really covers several different types of things that are being tested. There are some motor skills that are being tested. There are some judgments. There's some clinical case management, and there's some overall judgment and team leadership elements. In reviewing that, and this was laid out in 2019, but now we're in the stages of where we're moving through the implementation, what we're finding is that elements like clinical judgment, case management, and team leadership can be properly evaluated and examined through new innovative technology-enhanced items that can be attached to the cognitive exam. Mark, can you give us a specific example like of what that would look like to a test taker or kind of describe that? An example would be that instead of evaluating the ability to evaluate scene safety by having somebody walk into the station and say scene safety BSI, that instead on the computer-based exam, watching a video of the scene and then identifying the three hazards that were present in that video clip would be an example of that. So if we add on those things into the cognitive exam where we can ensure examination security, we can ensure that the exam is always delivered in exactly the same way, that there's not nuances that are being given by one of the examiners, then we can get a better assessment of those. Simultaneously, we know that motor skills are best assessed over time. 
So replacing a single one point in time exam with the evaluation of skills over a three to three month or a two year training program gives you an idea of whether or not a candidate can perform that skill consistently well under a variety of conditions. Those types of skill assessments would need to be done in conjunction with the accreditation body by the training program themselves. So by changing the student minimum competency expectations within the training program and changing the computer-based exam, we believe that we can get a better assessment of overall competency, although it does look different. So I would challenge a little bit the, the idea that we're just lengthening the exam. We're introducing new elements to the exam, and yes, it will make it slightly longer, but the overall examination process would be much less time constraining because this would ultimately, over the course of implementation over the next two years, then result in a more concise, independent examination process and building in more assessments through the training program. Great. On that topic of change and and progress, because that's uh, pretty much behind all of your your drives there at NREMT. Talk to us about the continued competency proposals and what you're working on in that arena. Thank you. The continued competency project has been going on for just over a year now, but it's got its history much before that. If you go back and look at the EMS Education Agenda for the Future, which was developed in 1999, published in 2000, there is a line in that document that says, of course, continued competency is issue as well, but nothing in this document speaks to continued competency. It only speaks to the initial assessment of competency. Somebody should come back and do a continued competency agenda for the future. And so that was called out as a need in the year 2000. Well, since that time, we've not had any agendas for the future. So the most important component of the continued competency has been the formulation of a steering committee representing all of the EMS organizations that were called and have sent representatives to a group that was organized by the National Registry to work on an agenda for the future, to lay out the vision of what continued competency and continuing education should look like, what are the structures, processes, and methods needed for that, what are the gaps, and given that agendas for the future typically have a five to 10-year planning horizon, what are some of the steps that will get us closer to our desired future? There are also then explorations of looking at what are other possible ways to verify continued competency that really gets into current trends within the certification and continuing education industry? Let's talk about technology. Rob, you were intimately involved with the industry embracing technology for recertification with Prodigy's Refresh. Let's get into, Mark, how you think that's changed the way we deliver education, whether it could be for the better and it could be forever that we never, quote unquote, go back to what we used to do in person or really do it differently. I don't think it's a matter of going back or never going back. I think it's a continuing evolution of how we think about and treat education. But specifically in the world of continuing education, technology has made a number of things possible now that were never really possible 10 or 15 years ago when I was working as an ambulance service training officer. And just in general trends, we've seen educational 
practices involve more and more formative assessment or formative evaluation of the knowledge as it's being gained. And tell us, uh, for those who don't know the jargon, what's a formative assessment versus a summative assessment? Ah, sorry. I do have the disadvantage of being in it up to my eyeballs sometimes, and I forget that I use the specialized terms. We do try and keep people's feet on the ground here, though. But uh, <laughs> Absolutely. As you should. As you should. Formative assessments would be an evaluation of learning that's designed to provide feedback to the learner, to point out gaps, and to say, you've got these points, but you're missing these two other points. A summative assessment of learning is what it's like to take a certification exam where the point is not to give feedback to the candidate. Instead, it is to provide a verification that the individual has mastered all of those concepts. Formative learning typically takes place in educational institutions. Summative learning typically takes place at licensure, credentialing, or certification processes. But those lines are getting blurred now. Because, for instance, if you look at physicians who historically have had to retake their tests every 10 years or so, they're moving closer and closer to formative assessments to where they're taking a few questions a quarter and they're getting, oh, you got this one wrong. Here's a series of articles that you should go look at to refresh your knowledge. And at the same time, the continuing education industry is adopting tools that are assessing whether or not the learner has mastered that concept and providing more and more targeted feedback. At some point, those two lines start to look like they're going to cross. And that's where I start to look at and say, if recertification is about an achievement of continued competency and verifying continued competency, maybe we don't need to spend as much time measuring how much time someone is in an educational endeavor. Instead, we can look to the verification. And there are some new ways of doing that. For instance, the tool called microlearning is engaging a learner in daily or every few days tasks that would evaluate whether or not they understand some point in three to five minute increments. Now, when I was a training officer, I couldn't imagine tracking continuing education in three minute increments. But the development of phone apps and websites that engage in the same thing make that now by far the most popular means of learning a foreign language. <laughs> If that were developed for EMS, that becomes a significant disruption of even how we think about the idea of continued competency now. Are you listening, inventors? Are you listening, entrepreneurs? This is a this is the jumping off point. This is where the Dan Limmers of the world and and the folks out there who are really thinking ahead are touching on things like micro learning. Or Rob, remember our last guest when we had Ray Fowler talked about interleaving. So we love having these nerdy educators on. But, but Ray Fowler also talked about the fact that he is a f absolute fan of the cell phone, flip phone. Sorry. So we have. Yeah. We we, we did the expanse of this, but uh, education is moving on, though, Mark. And I'm I'm always a fan of elephants in the room, and so I'm just going to bring one in now. Where we are now, or a degree, is this something that you want to opine on? I know it's probably a, a political question, but uh, it's one of those ones that seems to be dividing us. I think it is one that's dividing us. And normally when I've seen that from my vantage point at the National Registry, that's usually a good sign to let a consensus develop 
Bator rebuild rule structures around that. And so I think that while we are having an emerging consensus, it would be too soon to stake out any kind of a position on what that might look like. That was brilliantly answered. Thank you very much. <laughs> that was the catch-up question, but no, that was, that was very good. And it is an emotive issue. It's, it's almost, I say it's almost tribal in terms of you know the, the ability of folk to, to fund it, to actually take the time to do it, et cetera. And so uh, I will move on from, from that bit of the future to, you know, we have EMS Agenda 2050. When we, we look into a crystal ball, we navel gaze, we think what it's going to look like in the future. You talked about the immediate few years what do you think EMS and the state of education of EMS is going to be in, say, 20 years' time? Let's talk about where we're going to be in 2050. None of us will be here. Well, Hillary, you might be here, but none of us, oh, the rest of us will be here. But uh, where are we going to be in 2050 educationally? You know, I think the 2050 agenda lays out an ambitious future state, an ambitious vision for us. So if I look and, and look at the state of technology today, and then compare that to technology as I knew it in the year 2000. It is very hard for me to look ahead to 2040 and say what type of education is going to be possible there. I think it's very clear that we will be able to interleave and integrate continuing education, verification of competency, et cetera, from the actual work of being a practitioner. So, for instance, one of the very effective means of confirming competency in chest compressions right now is to look at the EKG monitor record that records the rate, depth, pauses, and in some cases, even leaning on the chest of chest compressions. There is no special things that are done. It's just looking at the data that is produced from the act of providing patient care. I suspect that that verification of competency starts to engage those things more and more as we have more sensors, as we have more automated recording, and the electronic medical records are no longer something that's done after the call and after the event as a recollection of what happened, but instead is data that's being recorded as a part of doing the event. And similarly, the idea of saying, wow, you just ran a pediatric cardiac arrest. Let's have some type of debriefing and review immediately afterwards is already in place in many organizations. As the future develops, and that can be done in real time, whether remotely or whether it has AI components that come up to that, all of a sudden that starts to become trackable events that it just becomes a data problem to integrate that in with continuing education and continued competency. So I think the lines start to blur as we go further out into the future, enabled by technology that in some cases may not have even been invented yet. And so that's where I start to say, let's make sure that to tie this back to your last question, though, Rob, there are going to be controversies that come up like the current controversy that you mentioned just now. We're going to have to be adept at navigating our way through those controversies to be able to get to 2050 and keep the patient in the center of our vision to be able to resolve the controversies and make sure the rules don't get in the way of progress. And to tie that back to data and technology, of course, I think it's quite exciting that AI and VR, just to use the in, in jargon, of course, are going to help us and enhance our ability to remotely train and educate people. And of course, 2050, I'm still predicting we're paving paradise and putting up parking lots, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. 
but I'm still hoping I can get a good cheeseburger. You can, and you should be. I'd like to be able to, you know, just uh, teleport myself over to Japan for some really fresh sushi for lunch. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Nice, but uh, no, I think there are a lot of ways in which we can get closer to those components, and I think it's looking at the ways in which we can get there, or in some cases, the technologies that you just mentioned are already here. There are already virtual simulation platforms. There are already VR platforms that are starting to engage in EMS content. And there are already, you know, very robust high fidelity simulation programs. And the AI is already starting to evidence itself both in content selection or even in content delivery through adaptive learning platforms. So in some cases, what we think of as the far future we're already starting to see and almost in some cases struggle with how do we interpret those things. Mark, one of the things as we wrap up today that I was really excited about when I moved from being a paramedic to being an EMS educator to being someone in charge of content for EMS World and now back into the education space is that I didn't realize back when I was just being a street paramedic, all of the opportunities that exist and that NREMT offers to, to its practitioners. I got invited to do an item writing seminar. And I thought at first, I don't want to do that. And then I realized, yes, I do. I want to learn how the NREMT creates questions and understands what's important to ask and how to get answers together and that kind of thing. Tell us about how educators out there and students, for that matter, can succeed by taking advantage of some of the resources that NREMT has to offer and really getting that peek at the man behind the curtain in the land of Oz, maybe even having a coffee with him. No, we'd love to, to have all of the different folks that are coming in. And I would describe it in one way. It is not the National Registry's exam in some sense. It is the EMS industry's exam. So National Registry staff like myself don't actually write the exam. The examinations team doesn't even write it. All they do is polish what's coming in from subject matter experts who participate in content development panels that then submit that information. And so the, the best way to engage in that process is to register with the National Registry as a volunteer to be able to put your name on, which we then draw from that volunteer database on a number of different projects. And so some of those projects are doing cognitive examinations. Some of those are writing scenarios and technology-enhanced items. And we're looking at broadening those opportunities in the future to make it less dependent on travel, less dependent on physical presence all in one room, which I think will, will always be an important component of it, but it won't be the only component of it. But we also use that to be able to troubleshoot software. The app development that we released for both the iPhone and the Android had a number of volunteer beta testers who were critical to the success of that effort. We've got another group that's looking right now at our support messages, at our help desk messages to say, are, does this make sense or is this just from our perspective of using words like formative without providing definitions? Do we need to, to make that real language in some ways? And so that's a really important component and a way to get engaged for folks throughout their careers. We love educators to be a part of that. We're also expanding the number of opportunities and communications outreaches that we have to make sure that we're putting more and more information on the website, that we're putting 
getting more and more information out there in regular webinars or teleconferences to be able to share what we do with the National Registry because there really are very few secrets in terms of how we put the examination together. We're trying to make that more and more transparent. And so, for instance, you know, one of the tips to maintain on what's going on is check the website frequently, and particularly in the months of June and November after a board meeting, because after those board meetings, all of the actions are put out for public comment. And we ask for EMS practitioners to engage with that and give us the feedback. If you don't think it's a good idea, tell us you don't think it's a good idea. We would love to hear those comments back because we want to make sure that we're being responsible to what EMS practitioners need, as well as being responsive to the public who need to know that all EMS practitioners have met the standard. And actually, that segues perfectly into where I was going to go next, and that's to actually ask you how we can get in touch with you, ask you how we can leave a comment, and also ask you how we can track and keep up with the changes at the National Registry. Thank you. The So first off, if someone is having a problem with the National Registry, the email address to send it to is support at nremt.org. It is one email address for all of the support needs. You don't have to know who to talk to within the National Registry. We can figure that part out. So anyone who is having difficulties or has a question, I would encourage to start out by emailing support at nremt.org. The second component is, is for the mechanics of working through recertification, the phone apps work very, very well and quickly for that. They allow you to take a picture of a certificate, upload it in, complete the application, submit that application, approve that application if you happen to be a training officer. All can be done on the phone while you're between calls or whenever you happen to, to want to access that information. The website is another place to check into. When we're asking for public comments, we do have comment forms that are accessible through the website, but whenever we have and are collecting comments on a specific policy initiative, we'll put that at a prominent place in the website to be able to collect that information. That actually turned out to be super critical during COVID when changes were coming out in some cases at a weekly or a monthly basis then it became incredibly important to check in with that to see what the latest ruling is. And while things are not changing with the same pace, there are a number of initiatives that that's the best place to get the sourced information. Well, of course, we'd love to, to talk with you either at conferences or to be able to engage, but feel free to email us and then we'd be able to, to engage in the conversations. And we love the feedback. And we don't just love the positive feedback. We also love those challenging questions that say, for instance, well, why in the world would you do X? Well, in most cases, there was a reason why we did it. May not be a good reason. <laughs> May not be a reason that's going to stand up over the next three weeks, but there was a reason for it. And through, you know, just you were talking about, Hillary, at the very beginning of the pandemic, those changes, you can look through the pandemic comment history and you will literally find that within 48 hours, there was a complete and total reversal of policy to where we said one thing on day one. And within 48 hours, we have said conditions have changed. We are now doing something completely different. Um, and so we've tried to maintain that approach of transparency and seeking out feedback to make sure that we're aligned with the needs of the industry throughout. Excellent. And we'll make sure we put that contact details in our show notes. And so, Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. 
If you are listening to this particular edition of the EMS Educator Podcast, just hang on inside the SoundCloud or the uh, the platform you're on because you can listen to the other editions that we've already got in the can with some great guests, including Peter Antevy, Ray Fowler, Dr. Emily Crow, Dr. Brent Myers, and many, many more. But for today, Mark Terry, thank you very much. Uh, over to you, Hillary, for the close. Talking with other educators and getting this information out to the world of EMS educators is just it's just imperative. And Mark, your transparency, your your wit, your willingness to discuss what some people think is a secret, which it isn't, and I learned that very quickly when we first met, is really appreciated. And I think the more educators can understand this summative test that our students end up taking and what the recertification requirements are based on, the better educators they can be. So thank you very much for being our guest, but more importantly, for all the work that you do on behalf of EMS practitioners. Well, Robin Hillary, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you and all of your listeners. And we look forward to the future that's coming ahead, or in some cases may already be here. We just haven't recognized it yet. <laughs> <laughs>